A scripture reading today is Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, which is located in our church Bibles on page 750. Please stand, if you're able, as we read from the Old Testament. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Please be seated. Before we come to our study this morning, let's remember that uh, the reason we're a bit thinner in our ranks this morning is because a number of our students are away at high school Mojnik. It's important for us to pray for them and to ask that God would continue his good work in bringing them up in the love and fear of the Lord. So uh, before we come to Daniel 12, let's, let's ask that God 
uh, work in Mojnik, uh, as he has done this weekend. Pray for Zach and for the band and for all of those who are helping there. Let's, let's pray for these things. Father, we thank you, particularly on this day, the day when we remember Jesus entering Jerusalem, being proclaimed king, and all of the peoples praising him. That is the day that we want to emulate, Lord. It's the day that we want ourselves to recognize the need in our lives to lift you up and to praise you. And we pray for our young ones out at Mojnik, Lord, that you would be stirring their hearts to praise Jesus, not just for one weekend, but preparing for a lifetime of doing so through all that their lives might bring. Father, we thank you that you are worthy of praise, not only on Palm Sunday, but every Sunday. And so, Father, we pray as we come to this text that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word. In Christ's name, amen. About uh, 11 or 12 years ago, there was a very successful end times preacher who famously predicted the end of the world on May 11th, 2011 at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Do you remember this? Uh, his followers waited eagerly for the day. Uh, the newspapers internationally paid him attention. Uh, Google recorded uh, that its highest searches were for end of the world. But May 11th came and went and nothing happened. The preacher then regrouped and said that it was only the spiritual judgment day, the real judgment day is coming on October the 21st. And when that didn't happen either, he said nothing, except that maybe he wasn't trying to predict the day or the hour anymore, like Jesus said, but only the month and the year. And no, people couldn't have their money back. Church history is littered with those who have claimed to work out the code for the secrets of the Bible and a precise date for the return of Jesus. But it is the trade of charlatans to pretend to you that they have these things worked out. I don't believe we were ever intended to know. Our certainty is to be by faith and not by calendar. And our approach, isn't this one of the things I think that we've learned in Daniel? Our approach to difficult passages like these in the Bible, in Daniel, is to be with an eye for the bigger picture and a heart of humility for those who take a different interpretation to our own. Having said all that, it is the calendar which presents us with a challenge this morning. We have three chapters left in Daniel, you may have noticed, and only one Sunday this morning, in fact, to cover them which would mean either a particularly long sermon or we're going to be, have to be careful with the way we deal with this. So throwing caution to the winds, we're going to look at chapter 12 and pick up bits of 10 and 11 as we go. What do we see as we come to the end of this book? Well, we see three things about the story of God's work and each of them should encourage us in our faith. So turn, if you will, to uh, chapter 12 in Daniel. It'll be helpful if you have the, the Bible there. I think the whole of chapter 12 is on the reverse side of the bulletin, but also uh, keep a finger in particularly chapter 10. So this is God's story. This is a story of crisis and dependence, verses 1 through 3. 
By way of uh, background, in chapter 10, Daniel is given a look at a world that neither he nor we would have guessed at. It is an invisible, parallel world where a spiritual conflict is raging between the forces of the kingdom of heaven and the forces of the kingdom of darkness. And what is striking, as you read in chapter 10, is the description of the spiritual beings there. The description is in geographical terms. So the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. They have been opposing, these spiritual beings, the unnamed person who's been speaking to Daniel. And this other figure, Michael, one of the chief princes, as he described is your prince, we find out in verse 21. He is the prince, the angelic being who has charge of Israel. And he too has been part of this conflict behind the scenes. And notice these beings have been given an authority which seems to correspond to human political regions. We only have the barest of glimpses here, not nearly enough to construct a theology of territorial spirits. What Daniel knows, what he needs to know here is plain, and that is that as soon as his prayer was prayed, it was heard. There was only a delay in the answer because a kind of blocking action on the path of these opposing powers. Uh, this scene brings uh, lots of pictures to mind, maybe it does for you too. Uh, I've been thinking this week of this sculpture, which I used to visit when I was a boy. It's outside one of the cathedrals in the middle of England. It depicts the scene in Revelation 12, when Michael, the archangel, the leader of the armies of heaven, defeated the old dragon Satan himself, and Satan was driven out. And surely, I think this is meant to be an encouragement to us as we read Daniel 10. In your prayers, you're to see this. You're to think not simply in this plane of existence, but also to understand the reality of that hidden world, that unseen world, where prayers have a significant impact and where angelic forces clash. Daniel's told the prayer he prayed in chapter 9, the prayer he prayed not in self-righteousness, but a prayer for mercy, has been heard in the throne room of heaven. And not all the forces of hell will keep God from responding. That's what Daniel needs to know. That's what we too need to bear in mind. There will be crisis, there will be conflict, whether we see it or not, but God's people will be delivered. The message of chapter 10. So here we get to chapter 12, and you'll notice that the word time is used again. This word time is used 39 times in this book. Obviously, the word time is difficult not to repeat uh, in any given sentence in either uh, English or Hebrew. And it can be a challenge in the book of Daniel trying to distinguish between one time and another, the different types of time. All these apocalyptic crises and figures and times seem to blend together as we read this. But Daniel is told this is the time of the end. Do you see that in verse 4? This is a different kind of time. It shall be, verse 1, a time of trouble such has never been since there was a nation till that time. If those words are familiar, it's because those are the words that Jesus speaks in Matthew 24 when he prophesies what we know now as the destruction of Jerusalem in the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. 
What does that tell us? Well, not a huge amount, but it suggests, as we read this, a pattern. That's what we've seen through these prophecies, repeated patterns. So when one thing happens, or when one figure appears, you remember Zach went into excellent detail about Antiochus Epiphanes, this this figure, one of Alexander's generals who arose about uh, the second century BC. And he was a terrible person. He treated the Jews abominably. He desecrated the temple in a way that was considered historic. But he was only a minor picture of a type of someone or something that will be repeated time and again until the very end of time. That too is part of the message of Daniel. That repeating pattern is being set up. That will be, if you will, kind of the the spine of history. And again, what do we know? Well, we know this with the repeated crises, there will also be repeated deliverances. Verse 1, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life or in the book. If you ever get scared at what's happening to you or you freak out about what's going on in the world, and I imagine that that's quite often nowadays if you're watching 24-hour news, I find it's helpful to say, okay, what's the worst that can happen to you right now? What is the the very, very worst thing that could happen? Uh, I'd advise you not to dwell on it, but focus on it for a moment because right after that, you need to say there is deliverance for that Two, that thing you just thought about. So in verse 2, what do we see here? Well, we see that for the very worst thing that any of us can think about, there is deliverance for that. This is the first and only unambiguous reverence, reference to the resurrection of God's people from death, physical death, and then resurrection to life everlasting in the whole Bible. This is where you find it in Daniel. This, this gospel, as we've seen again and again, is shown in the book of Daniel. It's not simply a New Testament thing. This is the Christian hope, isn't it? Resurrection to eternal life. It is deliverance. If you're looking for security and reassurance, this is what the Bible has to give you. That hope of eternal life where we will never be separated from the Lord nor from each other for eternity. And we may as well remind ourselves on it, of it on the brink of Easter. In this life, notice, it's not going to be a deliverance from conflict or a deliverance from disease or a deliverance from suffering or a deliverance from heartbreak. None of those things is promised. But it will be a deliverance from this life into the arms of the one who we find out here says he loves you because your name is written in his book. So even the very worst thing that could happen to you, the Bible says, has been disarmed. It has already been defeated because of Jesus. And that, my friends, is our hope and our daily antidote to the worries that will come. So this is a story, very practically, of history and of crisis and deliverance. Secondly, this is a story of turbulence and composure, verses 4 through 8. What does the future look like? Well, this is what Daniel is told in verse 4a. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. In other words, 
the human race will continue to do pretty much what we've seen it do for the past 5,000 years of recorded history. If you thought the information age was new, uh, you need to catch up. This has been going on forever. Humanity, for as long as we've been given, will spend its days in frenetic activity, running to and fro, chasing this answer, that solution, that new pit of knowledge, or that other one, forever, for all the time we're given. People will scurry about desperately trying to find information in their own power, but ultimately, they will fail in their attempt and produce from it precisely nothing useful. I was struck by this by one writer who wrote of their life shortly before they died. This was their conclusion for the life they'd lived. I have only plowed water. You think of all of those people who go into offices day by day, who run in the rat race of our lives, who just try to keep going, who are fighting for their value without knowing why. That is the human race at work. But you, by contrast, verse 4, Daniel, don't you be like that. Shut the book and seal it. It's important we understand here about this idea of a seal. What a seal does is it keeps things intact. It keeps things unaltered. So it, Daniel's not being told to hide the promises here. It's a bit late for that. The Bible has been published. People have read this. He's being told, rather, to hold on to them, to keep them intact, that's what a seal does. And as the scene returns here in verse 5 to this supernatural figure above the river who's been speaking, he's now joined, you'll notice, by two others. This is the question that Daniel strains to hear. And again, it has to do with time. This is verse 6 and following. How long will it be then till the end of these wonders, someone asks? And I heard the man clothed in linen swear by him who lives forever that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. When will that be? What time and date? Well, a time, times, and half a time. I heard, Daniel says, but I did not understand. Let me put it to you, if Daniel didn't understand, it's not given to us to understand these things either. Notice an answer isn't even given to his direct question that he asks at the end of verse 8. When, what will the outcome be? What will the end of all these things be? And of course, we are but flesh. We are desperate for answers. We think, at least I do some days, it would be great to know what's happening this week. But would I really want to know? Do I really want to know how my life is going to go? Wouldn't I spend my life trying to avoid the future rather than to embrace it in faith? We groan inwardly, Paul says, because we know this is not our people. This is not our home. And yet our calling is to take up our cross and follow our Savior. And I think it's so important that we keep this in mind on Palm Sunday. What an image of Christ entering the very city where he will be crucified, the city that should have belonged to him, that should have worshipped him. And so we following him, follow him into that same world that dishonored him and mistreats his people still. I like this engraving. It's by a 19th century artist called Herbert Bourne. Uh, I love it because in a Daniel kind of way, it brings things together that we hadn't expected to go together. It is 
true of life. I don't know if you can, can make it out entirely. The scene here is depicting Christians in the Roman arena. In fact, we had to make some of it a bit more obscure. There are lions there, and Christians are being killed and devoured. But there are also, notice, what we hadn't expected at such a moment, because we don't know how God could be in such a place at such a time, because surely this is outside of God's plan. But here are angels watching over them as they suffer for holding the name of Christ. There's an ordained purpose to it. The book of truth that we read about in Daniel implies that there is a script. There is a purpose. There is a life for us to live in obedience and faith and a glory in it even when it seems like our shattering, the shattering of the people of God. I don't know about you, I tend to restrict the rewards for Christian suffering to direct persecution. I tend to carry around a kind of mental uh, wallet with a photo in it of one day me being eaten by lions uh, wearing a suitably British pit helmet at the time. I don't know if you have your own images of persecution, but I think I persuaded myself that all other grades of suffering really didn't count, that the rest was just menial and mundane and it's what everybody goes through. But over the years, I've come to revise that opinion because I think God really does make all things count. Paul writes to the Philippians, for to you, he says, for you, the common people of the church of Philippi, it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You know, most of us, at least for me, I feel like if I'm honest, I will say when I hear of somebody else who's, for whom some tragedy has come, I think, well, thank heavens I missed that bullet. Thank heavens my number didn't come up. But the biblical picture is of this, that if you belong to Jesus, you will suffer. At some point, you will suffer for his sake. You will suffer because to be Part of the church means being loyal to Christ, and being loyal to Christ means that you cannot be always popular, and you will suffer in this world. We won't all suffer at the same time or in the same way, but we will, in one sense, all suffer together as we support each other as a community of faith. If you're struggling with a disease which brings you constant fear, or perhaps constant pain, or if you're terribly wronged, if you've been wronged, and you bear the scars of that abuse and it's never gone away, perhaps the shame of something that happened to you, or if you've been struggling with loneliness or with poverty or with the burden of caring for a family member, if you bear that burden, whatever it may be, if you remain loyal to Christ, holding on to him somehow through each day, even though you don't know how you're doing it. Grateful, faithful, because of Jesus, then you will receive, I think, that very great reward. It's a story, isn't it, of turbulence and composure, and you're a part of it. And it's a story, isn't it, of comfort and continuation. We'll end with this, verses 9 through 13. 
The speaker said, verse 9, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white, it says in the text here. In Hebrew it says purified. Shall make themselves purified and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. I promised you one last work of art. It's not much of a work of art, but here it is. Keep calm and carry on. You know, there's a history to this. this. This phrase, which has become popular recently, was put on posters in 1939 for a population that feared that with the coming war were going to be German mass air attacks on cities. They'd never experienced it. They didn't know what it would be like, and people were scared to death. So what should the English villager in his field do as a Nazi bomber flies overhead or a flying bomb whistles past his ears? This was the message. Keep calm and carry on. <laughs> That's more or less what Daniel is being told to do. It's not a bad motto for the Christian life. Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. So verses 9 and 13 Go your way, Daniel. Go your way. You shall rest. You shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. So as we end this book, it is appropriate to ask, how do you do that? How do you go your way? How do you go your way in the wake of something that's happened to you? How do you be faithful amidst all of the adversity that you have faced or you have seen how should you go your way reading this book? Well, Daniel has already been shown how. He's already experienced it. You may have noticed that I carefully avoided uh, the question of who is speaking to Daniel in these chapters. By process of elimination, I think we can know who it is. We know it's not Michael, the archangel, because Michael is being talked about in the conversation in chapters 10 and 11. We know it's not Gabriel, because in chapter 8, Gabriel is addressed by the person who is speaking. And all we know is that in this person's presence in chapter 10, it says in Hebrew that a great trembling fell on Daniel's companions. They couldn't see who was speaking, but they fell into a terrible terror. And Daniel, reread himself, collapses and faints with his face in the dust. And being the book of Daniel, of course, this is too is a pattern. It happens again, you will remember this, in Acts chapter 9 with Paul's encounter on the road to Damascus. And in Revelation 1, John, caught up in a vision, faints as if he were a dead man. Do you remember this? He faints in this person's presence, this same person's presence, yet he too is raised to his feet by the touch of the same hand. And this is what John writes. It's almost as if he were in that same room with Daniel. He says, Here was one like a son of man, a golden sash around his waist, his feet like burnished bronze, and his voice like the roar of a multitude of many waters. And if there's any doubt as to who this is, when Paul calls out in Acts chapter 9, Who are you, Lord? What does the answer come back? I am Jesus. The Jesus who came to Daniel, the Jesus who came to Paul, the Jesus who came to John, the Jesus who has come to you. So on this Palm Sunday, what could possibly want, make you want to live the Christian life? 
to deal radically perhaps with that besetting sin, not simply coming here Sunday by Sunday, receiving perhaps cheap grace, not living in newness of life, not putting that thing to death. What could motivate you to really change? Or what can make you want to live increasingly in real newness of life and hope and joy when so much of your life seems contrary to that hope? What will it take for you to go your way, to rest and stand, even with the burdens that have been given to you? Well, this is what it takes. This remarkable fact. It takes falling at the feet of Christ as if dead in your own failure and incapacity. The Bible says of us in our struggles, in our wanderings, because we're just like the rest of the world, running to and fro after this deal or that, after this opportunity or that secret or that healthcare kick, whatever it is. But it takes Christ raising you to your feet and whispering in your ears, you are greatly loved for you to live the Christian life today. If Daniel was one of the most consistently faithful and devotedly godly men in Christian history who has ever lived, and he was, if he couldn't stand in Christ's presence but needed his touch, what makes us think that we can go through our days without giving God a second thought? But equally, if he has raised you to your feet, if you have heard his words to you, then will you have what you need? to face every sin, to conquer these things, and to follow him somehow by his grace to the end that he has for you. This is an astonishing image which is repeated again and again for a purpose, that you would read this and that you would see Jesus who is for you. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son, hail to the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression, to set the captive free, to take away transgression and rule in equity. So here it is. This is the way that Daniel ends. With Christ, our comfort, and our continuation this Easter. Let's pray. Father, what if we could hear your voice, the sound of a multitude as of many rushing waters and what if we could see you see the person of Jesus dressed all clothed in shining white linen with a sash of gold and his feet and his arms like burnished bronze his hair shining his face too amazing to look at in his beauty you have assured us that by faith what we see when we see the words of this book what we will see one day when we see him with our own eyes. Lord, for those of us who are flagging in the faith, for those of us who are faltering under the condemnation of our own sin, for those of us who don't think that we have the strength and the power to lift ourselves again to face another day, Lord, would you work, would you touch us, would you raise us again to our feet in the hope and in the great promise of Easter, in Christ's name, amen.